Um, so this um, week, I want to continue with this theme of self and not-self, this um, sometimes challenging theme, sometimes very mysterious theme. What is the self? And what was the Buddha meaning when he taught about not-self? What, uh, how can we use this teaching to guide our practice? And we can remember that the teaching on not-self is often expressed as one of the fundamental uh, insights that we come to when we become wiser. That in particular, it's pointed out that we become clearer about seeing impermanence and about the flow of things, the movement of things, how things change. We also become wiser about the nature of suffering and what are the roots of suffering, what causes the reaction and the tension, the stress in the mind and heart and body, and what the roots of that are. And the third particular insight that we come to as we become wiser is about what's called not-self, anatta is the word in the Pali. And this refers to the fact that we don't find uh, an independent, separate, rigid, permanent self in our experience. And that opening to that understanding is liberating. And so what I want to do today is actually to unpack further the meaning of that teaching, particularly. And I want to do so in part by doing a few exercises and even meditations together. Usually we have a meditation and then talk and discussion, but I want to do actually one um, reflection exercise in the middle of the talk and also some further guided meditation to work with this, because I think that My aim is to have this teaching of not-self be somewhat um, demystified and be made very ordinary and practical while still powerful and liberating. So that's my my intention. Uh, So I wanted to just review a little bit of uh, where I was the last two weeks and I I checked on Dharma Seed, and those talks typically are up a day or two after the talk, but they're not, they're not up yet for some reason, so hopefully they'll be up soon. Um, so the, uh, two weeks ago, I gave an overview of the whole theme of self and not-self. And last week, I particularly looked at some of the ways that self manifests. So I want to very briefly review that and then, and then go further. So I, I talked especially two weeks ago about the, the level of confusion that's often there about self and not self. And it's a, it's a mysterious, uh, mysterious uh, object or mysterious theme, this theme of the self, uh, that it's been... Uh, a very much a perennial theme, some version of self in so many traditions. You know, in many ancient traditions, this was the question 
of the soul and the nature of the soul. Is there some, something at our depths which is sort of persists and, and persists even after death? Uh, or in other traditions, the notion of uh, the deep self uh, in Hinduism, the Atman, that also uh, goes uh, beyond death. Or we have in indigenous traditions, we have a sense of when people die, they don't really die, but the ancestors are, stay accessible for guidance for the community. And they can be invoked in ritual. You know, again, all of this about the mystery of our own individuation. And we all know that we will each die. Um, and, and what do we make of this self? And you know, philosophers and psychologists have also investigated what is the self? Where is the self? Is there a self? And it can be very confusing. People use words in all sorts of different ways. People use the word ego, for example, sometimes to mean something negative, to be, you know, as in egotistical, and we think of meditation as going beyond the ego. And then Western psychologists use the ego in a more neutral way as simply the organizing capacity that brings together uh, different aspects of experience. You know, so that we, have, that we have the sense of a unified experience as opposed to now there's just this, now there's just this. But we have a sense of unifying and even negotiating among the different parts of experience. So who decides whether to have that second bowl of ice cream? Sometimes we think it's the self. <laughs> Sometimes we think, I couldn't help it. <laughs> so language is very fascinating in, in letting us know some sense of what we culturally think about this, this self. But it's a very mysterious topic. You know, and some psychologists have tried to find the self, and the psychologist William James, uh, who was involved in a kind of introspective psychology, which, you know, which went out of favor. Uh, he lived, you know, at the uh, turn into the 20th century and was really one of the founders of uh, modern psychology, but he really had a kind of introspective psychology that was closer really to what we do with our meditation practice and which is coming back some. But he uh, looked for the self in his experience and, he, and his answer about, I, he said, the only thing I can find that seems something like a self is a slight tickle in my neck. <laughs> you know, and sometimes people think the self is, you know, something that's kind of in the head that's kind of directing traffic, you know, but the, you know, the scientists of the brain say, actually, when you look at the brain, there's no central control. Interesting, isn't it? There's no central control. There's just a lot of different processes happening that are coordinated, yes, they're coordinated, but there's no, you know, when you look at the brain, it's not like you say, okay, there's, there's that self, because we often think of the self as the watcher or the decider, like Mr. Bush, you know, um, you know, the one who is in control. And so it's very confusing, 
And then we have this teaching of not-self, and what, do, what does that mean? And it um, can be even more confusing because the Buddha, sometimes when he's asked, is there a self, he says, uh, he, he refuses to answer. You know, there's this famous story. Maybe I'll read this. I haven't read it before, I think. This is, uh, the Buddha is visited by a wandering meditator, yogin, named Vachagota. And I'll read this. He approaches the Buddha and said to him, How is it now, Mr. Gotama? Is there a self? When this was said, the Buddha was silent. Then, Master Gotama, is there no self? A second time, he was silent. Then the wanderer Vachagota rose from his seat and departed. Not long after he had left, the Venerable Ananda, who was the Buddha's assistant, said to the Buddha, why didn't you answer? And the Buddha says, if when I was asked by Vachagota, is there a self, I had answered, there is a self, this would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are eternalists. In other words, it would get into a one-sided view that things are eternal and everlasting. Because at, in the, at the time of the Buddha, that was the prevailing model of the self. It was what, in what we now call the Hindu tradition that there is something like a soul that lasts forever and that the self is permanent, independent, and um, can't really be touched by circumstances. And so he would have been siding with that uh, group of views. And then if I was asked, is there no self, I had answered, there is no self, I would have been siding with those ascetics and Brahmins who are annihilationist, which is another view of the time that basically is kind of, we would call it nihilism, that nothing matters, that um, there's no real self, that it doesn't matter what you do. This is particularly important ethically. It doesn't matter what you do. Everything's kind of determined, very much like some of our scientific determinists who say, you know, you're just like a robot and you're just doing this because you've been conditioned or programmed a certain way, and you think you have a self, but you don't. Right? And so what the Buddha was saying, uh, he basically says, if when I was asked, is there no self, I had answered there is no self, the wanderer of Achagota, already confused, would have fallen into greater confusion, thinking, it seems that the self I had formerly had does not exist now. And what that points to, I think, that text, is that the, the way of resolving this issue is not conceptual, but it's rather practical. That there isn't really a philosophical resolution possible of the question, is there a self or is there not a self? And that, related to what we were talking about earlier, the pointing is to investigate the topic experientially and practically, and that that's really where the uh, understanding arises. So I want to um, help do that in certain ways. Last time, we looked at <coughs> several varieties of self, because in a way, I think the practice that we do can fall into I think three categories. The investigation of self experientially and practically is made up of three parts. The first part 
is to see where the self appears in a strong way or in a thick way, to really look at that, to see how in my experience do I find a strong sense of self. And it's not saying that that's bad or wrong, but just seeing how it appears. And we particularly, as in the guided meditation, can look for a sense of self in uh, liking or disliking, in our reactions, in our views, you know, that there can be a strong sense of self when I have an argument with another person, right? That's my view. You, know, you have your view. You're wrong. I'm right. You know, or uh, the sense sometimes of goodness or badness. I'm good. I'm bad. Whatever. Or in um, maybe identifying with our roles or our... Uh, some aspects of our being. So we may identify with being uh, a doctor, or being a teacher, or being unemployed, or being a man, or being a woman, or being young, or being old. All of these aspects may elicit a strong sense of self. I may think, that's, real, that's, that's who I am. And, that, and the, the sense of self can be... Uh, can be uh, positive, can be negative, can be all sorts of things. And there are aspects of having a self that can be actually helpful. You know, we can have a, se- a sense of being a meditator, and I may say, I'm a meditator, therefore I should meditate every day. But if you didn't have a sense of being a meditator, you might not meditate. So sense of self is not necessarily always a problem. Sometimes it's quite helpful you know, to have that sense of self. And, uh, and so we have all these different aspects. And last time I talked about five different, um, five different ways that the self appears. And um, I just want to mention those uh, briefly. The first I, what I took from Tibetan tradition and I called the mere eye, the self. This, is, this actually doesn't involve any grasping or fixing. And the, the problem with um, the self or having a sense of self in the teachings of the Buddha are going to be that we grasp onto some parts of experience and call it self. And the grasping is connected with suffering. So in this first sense of self, there's not necessarily grasping or fixation. It's just, this is what I do. You know, I'm a barber. I'm, a, uh, you know, I'm an auto mechanic. I do this. And we may not grasp onto it. We may just have a sense of individuality. And, and that could be called the mere I. And there's also, in Western psychology, sometimes a very neutral sense of what we mean by self. It's, again, just the way we organize experience together. The other aspects of self uh, are quite often areas of grasping. But they don't need to be, but they, they often are. The, um, the second one I want to mention is, uh, and some of them are more subtle, some of them are more easy to see. The second area that I want to mention is, uh, has to do with cultural conditioning. That each culture has, a certain, has certain predominant notions of self. And I was looking last time at how sometimes they're very, you know, these are hard to know because there are conditioning and everyone shares it. So we have in our culture conditioning about self that's very, we might say, individualist. 
we have a sense of being individuals. We have the myth of the self-made man, so to speak. We have the interest in being an authentic self who really knows what I want and goes for it. Right? It's very strong in our culture. And it shifted you know, from a more community-based sense of self that might have been predominant 100 years ago or 150 years ago in this culture, much more individualist. And I think this has both pros and cons. But it's a very strong conditioning that we tend to see um, my individuality as the primary reality of my life. Sometimes it gets expanded to be with the family or maybe with one's kin, but it's a very strong sense of self and sometimes very subtle. You know, and one can feel that, you know, that sense of self uh, when one goes to other cultures often. You go to another culture and say, hmm, they have a very different sense of self. Uh, you know, and I, I told stories last time about some of my experiences traveling in Thailand and also former Soviet Union where the sense of self seemed very different. I come back to the Bay Area, it's, it's like everyone wants to tell me the latest news about, we might say, each person wanting to tell the la- latest news about me. <laughs> you know, sometimes we say that in this, in this culture when we meditate we mostly study the story of me. <laughs> So, uh, there's that sense of self. There's also um, the sense of self as following a social role. We can identify, again, much like I mentioned earlier, we can have that sense of self uh, that is, um, can be quite strong identifying with a role, um, thinking, again, it could be for good, we can think that it's good, we can think that it's bad, you know, I'm only this in terms of my work, I should have been that. I should have been some other kind of work. We can have a a negative or aversive association with our sense of self around a role. Again, it can be a sense of self around our age, our gender, ethnicity. These can be very strong and there's a lot of cultural conditioning about all this as well, right? That to, you know, just think of generally in past societies to be an elder was seen to be good and in our society, it tends to uh, certainly not be seen in the same way. In other societies, the elders were those who carried the wisdom. In our society, it's a little bit like they're become irrelevant, elderly people. And you know, many of us can maybe feel that as we get older. <laughs> you can feel that conditioning, you know, and um, it's, there's, a lot, there's a lot there we can unpack. I've been thinking of having a series on the aging process, you know, to look at that. You know, I know Anna Douglas is teaching a lot about that here at Spirit Rock, so there's a, there's a lot there. So there's, that's the third area, the social role. The fourth area that I mentioned was particularly informed by Western psychology, and that's the area, we might say, of our uh, habits, and particularly the kind of personal conditioning we've had where there may have been some wound, some trauma, some difficulty, and we come to have more of a fixed and frozen sense of self in some area, you know, particularly where there might be a wound. And again, it may not be about our whole personality, but I may, be, I may develop a personality that really wants order as a reaction maybe to the way my life has gone on, maybe disorder happening earlier, or maybe just what my family did. You know, I may have a certain uh, fixation around order or 
I may, uh, I may always want to be right. Anyone like that? No? I won't, I won't ask. It's, we, that, that's, we have to keep that a little bit hidden. Okay. So hands, hands don't go up. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, if you would raise your hand to say that you always think you're right, it would actually be a sign that you don't always think you're right because to raise your hand is clearly the wrong thing to do. <laughs> okay. So, and then the, um, so there's these, this whole area which I, we could really unpack in a lot of depth, the places in our being where we're a little stuck or frozen or fixed. And again, Western psychology can really uh, analyze that quite well, sort of developmental wounds or places where we're, we're stuck or overly fixated and so forth. And those are places where the sense of self can be quite strong, you know, where uh, that basically if I have a wounded territory or a vulnerable territory, I will have a lot of defense mechanisms that try to protect myself. And that, that will feel to myself and to others like a strong sense of self, like I have to protect myself. If I didn't, I, w- I would not be well, I would not survive. And then the fifth area where self appears strongly is uh, a little more subtle. It's what I call the subtle distinction between self and other, between subject and object. The sense of being separate from another person, maybe separate from me, separate from this bell, even separate from the sound, separate from things and have a sense of the self being like the watcher or the observer or the controller or the doer that acts on a world that is different from me, that has objects different from me. So this first type of practice, we look at how the self appears thickly. In a moment, I'll do an exercise together. The second area of practice, which I'll get to a little later, is the area of practice where we explore how to look at experience free of a sense of self. Another way to say it is we see the sense of self increasingly, and increasingly we're able to open up to experience not organized or controlled by a sense of self. This is a lot of what we do in meditation. Just in a very simple way, it is we can be with the breath and just be with the sensations of breath, let them come and go without controlling the breath, just being present with the breath or just being present with what arises in experience. In the very act of meditation, there's, a, there's some degree of letting go of a sense of self. You know, we, we actually don't try to uh, control all of experience. We let experience be as it is. And of course, that's sometimes challenging. And we can feel the sense of self sometimes in the desire to control the breath, or the desire for the experience to be a certain way. So we'll come back to that. And that's, that's a huge area of our practice. It's really increasingly opening to a way of being without a strong sense of self. And the claim is that this is tremendously liberating and freeing. That when the self gets fixated, 
and grasping, it does lead to suffering. So we'll come back to that. The last area, the third area I want to mention, I think is more of a complement to these other two practices. And that is to bring, it's really to bring in the heart. And to, I think if we're really looking carefully at self and not self, it actually is important to do practices like loving-kindness and compassion practices because it's actually a challenging territory to look at. And it sometimes even can be scary when we actually see the extent to which the self is a construction. It can lead us to, to see that we've been organizing experience and looking at the world, so to speak, through a construction that we think is real. And that it can sometimes be a little uh, disorienting or destabilizing. And when we look deeply, it, it can be like that. You know, I remember one of my first retreats. I um, had really, was really enjoying meditation. I was really getting into it. And I didn't quite realize it, but I had an identification of myself as being a good meditator. <laughs> this can be a problem. <laughs> and I was at the retreat, and for a long time, I was doing what I thought a good meditator would do. I would, I would sit for a long time. I would appear very silent, very calm. I would walk slowly. I would um, uh, sit straight, wouldn't move that much, stay up late, get up early. <laughs> you know, if you've been to retreats, you know, you know that the drama of who's a good meditator or not is, is pretty big because <laughs> there's not much else happening. <laughs> you know, here on Wednesday morning, it's a little more relaxed. We don't, don't have those kind of pressures. But on re- when you go on retreat, and a number of you have been on retreats, so, you know, there's not much happening. So if I want to be a good meditator, which was quite important to me, how am I going to show people I'm a good meditator? Of course, they have their eyes closed most of the time. So <laughs> I mean, whether, whether anyone's noticing is a whole other question one could ask. But, but there I am, wanting to be a good meditator. And I was going along very nicely, and then I got sick. Getting sick and having a cold, I was pretty sure was not what good meditators do. (laughs) And certainly the way I appeared in the meditation hall, you know, which was moving around, fidgeting some, sniffling a lot, swallowing a lot, I was completely sure that a good meditator was not like this. And I sat there, and I was on a two-week retreat, experiencing that continually. And it was increasingly hard to maintain the self-image of being a good meditator, at least in my own mind. Again, other people, I never did post-retreat questionnaires about (laughs) what they were noticing about me. (laughs) But there was, you know, for myself, 
it was, uh, I'm, I'm being humorous, but you can imagine that, you know, I was, I was uh, you know, in my 20s and a young meditator and I was really into it. It was really important to me. You can imagine that it was actually quite painful. And I sat there and I watched my self-image fall apart. The self-image, I thought, of being a good meditator. And I had to sit with it, you know hour after hour, minute after minute, being with that experience. And it was, um, it was fearsome at times, you know, because that sense of self, whatever suffering it may lead to, and you could see in this case how the suffering did occur, right, with my, that sense of self. If I'm a good meditator means I have to do everything kind of perfectly, it's a setup for certain kinds of suffering, and it was a setup in that instance. And uh, if I had a, maybe a different conception, which I uh, believe I have now <laughs> from, that lear- from learning and learning other times, then uh, being sick and appearing a certain way isn't such a big deal, right? But for me at that time it was. And I would sit there and I didn't want to appear like I was ap- appearing. I didn't want to experience what I was experiencing. And there was some huge, as it were, a dissonance between the way I thought I was, the way I wanted to be, and what was actually happening. And it was painful and disorienting and um, quite hard. You know. And, um, you know, I stayed in it. And, of course, we have teachers and guides who can help people through that experience. But sometimes when we stay with the sense of self, particularly in those hard situations, you can have a, one can have a sense like the sense of self is deconstructing. You know, and the self-images are deconstructing. In that case, it was happening like that. So it can be hard. And I think that partly for that reason, if we're really looking into self and not self a lot, I think it's very important to have these heart practices which really support us in this. And ultimately, we may have a sense, we may develop a sense of compassion that we're all these beings who are trying to have a sense of self when it actually is kind of an impossible project. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that. So the compassion practice, some kind of loving kindness or compassion practice, if we're really looking at self, I think it's quite important. So there's three types of practice. First, the looking at self. Second, the opening, we might say, to not-self. And third, the heart practices that kind of hold it all and hold it all even when it's sometimes hard or scary. As it, if we're really looking deeply at self and we look deeply, there will be times when it's scary. No way around that. Okay, so I wanted to... Um, uh, do an exercise. I wanted to just ask you to reflect. When is your sense of self thick? Or when does it feel like your sense of self is very strong? Again, it could be when there's a, it could be like where there's a self-image or a view or Sometimes when we have conflict, the sense of self in polarization with another person can get very strong. Or it could be around liking or disliking, very ordinary. When do you have a strong sense of self? Just to reflect for yourself right now. 
And I'm wondering if anyone would be willing to, to share an instance of there being a strong self. And maybe we could use the microphone here if someone could help with that. Now we have to have a fairly open and flexible sense of self to be willing to talk about <laughs> when there's a sense of self that gets thick. Would anyone be willing just to share, please? And you can, you can do right uh, in the back and then two people on this side. Yeah, if you can be on the relatively brief side so we get a few chances for a few people. Okay. I feel a strong sense of self. Is that on? Usually there are two switches you have to turn yeah, on there. They're both on. Okay. Can you hear me though? Yeah. Because you I'm beginning to forget. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you can put that close to your mouth, that would be... Okay. Any difference? No. Okay. I'll try to be loud now. Okay. And I'll repeat it. Okay. Um, I feel a strong sense of self. When I catch myself at, at abandoning, um, at abandoning what's not necessary, that's where I feel this, you know, this, um, I mean, the intensity of judgments, mm -hmm. that moment of, you know, just, it could be letting go, mm -hmm. you know, gently. So abandoning something in your experience that you don't think is necessary. It could be doing this or doing that or um, even having a view or something like that. Yes. Yeah, and that when you say, oh, this is a conditioning that I seem to, seems to be important to me or was in the past, but I want to maybe let go of that. Yeah, thank you. Okay, please. Is that working at all? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat then also. Um, I, I was thinking about it yesterday when I was with my 40-year-old son. Yeah. And I, this is similar to the, the, the previous comment of abandoning that role of, of being the real nurturing mother. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and, I, and, I'm and I kind of struggle away with it the whole time I'm with him because I can feel it right away when I start getting too nurturing for yeah. him. Because he wants to be, well, he's 40 years old, so I'm saying. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, it, but it's very, it's a very strong kind of a struggle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So having, uh, when you're wanting to help or nurture, yeah. and there's some resistance, that, yeah. as if he's saying, "I want to be an independent self." Yes. Yeah. And you, and your sense maybe of self, I want to be a mama. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Thank you. So it's kind of both sides. There's the sense of self arising, yes. and there can be some. Friction. <laughs> yeah, so maybe, please, maybe one more. Yeah. I feel that when somebody I care about or I respect treats me with a lack of respect or yeah. patience or indifference, and I get this reaction that I have been disrespected, my feelings are hurt. Yeah, yeah so a sense of uh, there being disrespect, my feelings are hurt, and there's a strong sense of, of I or 
I have to do something or defend myself or this isn't right. I haven't, I haven't been treated right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, maybe, were there, maybe I'll do one or two more if there are. Please, maybe up front and, and then in the back. We'll do two more. Okay, please. So I'll, I'll repeat them because the microphone's not working. Okay, yeah. I notice when fear arises, mm-hmm. my ego likes to overcompensate, yeah. and I feel stronger need or sense of self. Yeah. It's like my ego structure is trying to make a secure self yeah. under uh, in the midst of fear. Yeah. So whether it's in a, you know, a disagreement, or if things in my life are in flux, and fear arises, then my sense of self gets stronger to overcompensate. Yeah. For the insecurities I'm feeling. Yeah. Yeah. So saying that when there is fear that arises, there's, there's uh, observation that the sense of self gets stronger as if to make things more secure by um, having whatever structure or just uh, some kind of uh, clear organization response. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. One more in the back, please. Yeah. For my work. Yeah. And um, and I find even you just asking to think about it briefly, it becomes a um, a judgment cycle yeah. about what I am that fulfills uh, my own identity. You know, my feeling of self around my work and what I'm not doing. Yeah. In that moment, to be that sense of you know self around my work and um, and the last speaker mentioned um, insecurity, and I think that that is really part of the cycle is feeling the insecurity about the identity of self and how myself is or is not yeah. what I want it to be about work. Yeah. So a sense of um, a sense of self getting stronger in relationship to one's work, one's one's role, and seeing a certain degree of insecurity about about that and wanting to in some ways respond to the insecurity. How many people can relate to some of <coughs> the accounts that were given? <laughs> Fear, insecurity, disrespect, uh, some of the others about letting go and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So this first kind of practice, and again, we can do this in our meditation and in daily life, is just to track a sense of self. And we, again, are are not saying that a sense of self is simply uh, bad or wrong. That a certain sense of self can be skillful, as I I mentioned, uh, your sense of doing your role probably gets you to work. (laughs) That can be helpful. But, But we're going to come back and say, to understand ourselves most deeply, we want to see something yet more subtle about the sense of self. And certainly the Buddha, in talking about the self, used conventional language. You know, there's a sense of self. One can be a meditator who does this, who is a good meditator, a bad meditator, uh, can can do this work. And there's certain conventional language. The second kind of inquiry is really about whether this sense of self 
is ultimate or more of a construction. And it's really to see how it arises and to see where it's useful and to see where it can be a problem. The deepest understanding, it is said, is to see experience without a sense of uh, independent, separate, permanent self. And so, as we practice more, we may have a sense of self, and it may be more relative. It may be more interdependent. You know, we may have, okay, it may be closer to what I was calling the mere eye, less fixation, less grasping, but yes, I have this role. Yes, that's, that's, in a conventional language, that's me. But I may not, as it were, pin my ultimate worth on my role or on this or that. And I may open, and this is really the teaching, open to a deeper identity, so to speak, which is ultimately more interdependent. The core teaching, and I'm I'm going to be giving this also next time, the core teaching is that when we look carefully, there is no fixed or abiding permanent self that we can't find that in our experience. And in fact, that um, when we look carefully, we can see how there is this longing to be someone or to be substantial. And it may be that our essence is that of actually having this sense of lack that we try to fill, that wants to be someone, And as we practice more, we can see how that project, while it can have certain temporary successes, ultimately doesn't work. Because there's nothing really in experience that we find that is abiding or permanent. And this is partly what we do in our meditation practice. And we learn to see what the self is, and we learn to experience more without a firm sense of self. And one of the ways that I have mentioned the last two times that I find helpful is to see actually that some of our most wonderful experiences that we have in our lives actually are experiences of not-self. They're experiences in which we don't have this firm sense of a separate self. And we, you know, and I've mentioned these very ordinary, well, ordinary, extraordinary experiences in which we may be immersed in an activity as an artist, a musician, a student, a cook, and we're just immersed in the activity and there's no self-consciousness and there's no sense of self and we're just fully in it, you know? And remember, I think uh, two times ago, I read a poem based on a conversation with my mother, who's a musician, who happens to be here, and she, she said that uh, when one's playing music, if there's a sense of self, it's a problem. You have to let yourself be taken over by the music, right? And if that, or when people are playing, if a bunch of jazz musicians are playing and one jazz musician, after some amazing music, says, hey, that was pretty good. At that moment, the person's out of the flow in music. And so we can have these experiences in different activities 
that are quite beautiful. And I think it's a really helpful reference point to use to, to study uh, the not-self as it appears in our, in our meditative experience and then gets brought into experience. Or we can be um, you know, uh, doing all sorts of activities or be very close to people. You know, and there can be a, a, not much of a sense of self. When we're very connected with another person, there can be almost like a merging with that person, you know, merging almost of mind, of body, you know. I know it's very interesting. They're almost like psychic phenomena seem to occur a lot. Anyone, people have the same dreams when they're very close. Anyone had that experience? You know, it's very, very interesting, you know, and the kind of thoughts can be very similar or there can be just this attunement and uh, even, even something like the way we are with our emotions. Our emotions, in many ways, are very open to other people. And we, we study the limbic system. When we study the brain, the limbic system really basically says there's a whole field of emotion that we can tune into. So when someone comes in the room and that person is experiencing distress, I can know that. Right? That's... That's not a separate self, is it? And that's our ordinary working. <laughs> so there are a lot of very ordinary ways in which we don't have a sense of self. In fact, the sense of self is there especially because of certain cultural conditioning. It's there a lot because of language. We use language, and Western languages have subject-object structures. Other la- not all languages have that. And there seems to be a need to have a self doing something, or else the language doesn't make sense. The philosopher Wittgenstein said he thought the self was a grammatical error. (laughs) Based on, you know, basically fixating on the structure of language. That's a subject-object structure for the sake of convenience, right? So language, he said, he also used the word, he said, language is bewitching. It makes us think certain things. Right? And so we have the language. You know, we say, how are you doing? That's our way of greeting people and say, I'm fine. You know, and, or, you know, I have, uh, I have a cold, you know, which kind of points to two models. You know, one is I'm an essential person who is this way. And the other model is I am a person who is a container for different experiences. And these are like, kind of built into the language as metaphors. So language influences us. I think another big influence is the fact of having bodies. Because when you look to the different senses, and I'm mentioning this in terms of emotions, but you look to the different senses, and if you were just operating with hearing, there might be a much more interdependent, connected sense of who we are. Or just if we were experiencing sensations. Or more inner feelings, or even, even thoughts. Thoughts are all over. The thoughts come, you know, my thoughts come from the radio, from this conversation, and it's much more of a sense of interdependence. They're not just my thoughts, right? Thoughts go from one person like a virus, so to speak, or like, like people talk about that. They talk about, you know, like uh, on the internet, something, what, what's the word for when viral, viral you know, Something goes viral on the internet. It's like the idea spreads and spreads and spreads, and everyone's connected with it, right? So those, that's, but it's our bodies that make us feel, oh, there's something different. We're separate. So there's quite a lot of uh, focus on the body. And uh, what was the other thing? I think vision also. 
that's connected with it. The, the prom- predominance of vision, which is connected with language, most of our language doesn't have much to do with inner experience. And the predominance of vision also tends to make us think we have a self. If we were going with the other senses, we wouldn't do that quite in the same way. So we want to look at that sense of self and see if we can open up to um, experiences that are beyond that model of self. And I'll just mention, I'll do in more depth, I'll go into this next time. But one way that we do this in meditation is that we just really stay with the experience that's happening. So you might even right now, I'll just do this for a few minutes, right now, just stay with your experiences of your body. Just notice what's happening at the level of the body. Notice the sensations. And notice if there's any self that appears. Now tune into your sense of whether the experience right now, let's stay with the body, is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. You might feel a little warm, for example, and it might feel mildly unpleasant. Just notice that. Maybe a little thirsty might be a little unpleasant, or there might be a pleasant relaxation. Or there might be thoughts occurring. Just now you can be open to thoughts or emotions. And can they just occur? And notice if you take one of your thoughts and want to build on it. So in our meditation, and we can bring this out into the flow of daily life, we can notice when we're just experiencing, in this case, body sensations, or a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or thoughts or emotions, and when we're experiencing those just happening, and when we, as it were, bring a sense of self into it, like we might have noticed, oh, my knee hurts. I better go to the doctor. And again, there's no, we're not really saying this is wrong, but we were just really wanting to notice when self appears and be able uh, at times to be just with that flow of experience with very, very little sense of self or just to be with a sense of pleasant or unpleasant. And we can notice, as, as we probably know, that it's very common when there's a sense of pleasant 
to like it and to grab hold of it, maybe think about it, when there's a sense of unpleasant aversion, push it away, think about it. And then thoughts and emotions when they occur can often, as it were, proliferate tremendously. So in meditation, what we can do is see if we can just tune in to the flow of experience. And when self arises, notice it and let it go and be back with that flow of experience. And we can do the same thing in daily life. You can notice thoughts coming and a a strong sense of self is developing. And this occurs with a lot of our habitual tendencies, maybe self-judgments or others. You can notice how something happens and then thoughts proliferate. I'll talk next time. There's a strong connection between the proliferation of thoughts and a sense of self. And so we'll look more at that next time. But maybe for now, let me just end by uh, remembering those three kinds of practice. First, looking carefully at self when it appears in a thick way, first. Secondly, opening up to more to experiences when the sense of self gets thinner, we might say. And at times when there's just being with the sensations, again, it could be, can I be with a sunset or can I be with the forest and just be with the sensual experience of that without bringing a sense of self, like, I ought to do this more often. (laughs) Again, nothing wrong with that, just noticing it. And then can we free ourselves to experience that sense of that, it's really a, a kind of a flow without a sense of self, and to experience that more and more, and look out for when that appears in one of your activities. Good. So I'll stop here and invite any, uh, why don't we just take a pause for about a 30 seconds or so, and then I'll invite any uh, questions. We have a little bit of time for that. So any, any thoughts or questions, reflections that anyone has? Please. <clears throat> Last week, yeah. uh, a couple of things popped up for me because this is a, a subject that I've thought a lot about over my yeah. life. And um, about is there, is there a real self? Is there yeah. a separate real self or not? And uh, are we all independent and uh, uh, interdependent? And I thought of um, two different pieces of information that just popped up. One was listening to a group from NASA talk about their experiments sending, um, in advance of sending astronauts out, uh, to the moon, that they wondered which, which would provide the best chances of a safe return, taking your brightest, most brilliant astronaut and letting him or her problem solve a malfunction of the ship. Yeah. Or if you had a group of astronauts, a small group of astronauts, and they did experiments over and over creating simulated yeah. problems. And always it was the group that could solve a problem and get back to the spaceship and yeah. return safely. And so in my mind it's like, whoa, different perspectives yeah. are really important. Yeah. Then I heard a speaker talk about uh, 
a question in the pig setting. I was asked, is there really a, a, a uniqueness to a person? And the response was, um, there won't scientifically, genetically be another duplicate mm -hmm. of each individual for something like 84 million light years. <laughs> there was, it, unless we cloned individuals mm. naturally, the way the way we're uh, way nature uh, has uh, pr uh, produced individuals so far, they're absolutely unique. And uh, both those pieces of information just have been rattling around in my head this week, <laughs> and, uh, uh, thinking a lot about uh, um, about the about the meaning of both of those uh, uh, tidbits of. Yeah, yeah. So the, the first uh, is from NASA finding that the problem solving of a group is superior to that of an individual, perhaps because of multiple perspectives. And the second uh, observation being about the fact that each of us are unique and that there won't be another one of us for 84 million light years, which is a long wait. <laughs> And so, and so, what do we what do we make of those? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, please. For me, the second piece of information, knowing that, would seems to me it would make it easier to let go of the self. Mm -hmm. you know, that knowing my unique is, in other words, is my uniqueness. Is that is that who I am? Is it my um, DNA pattern? Is that myself? Um, in many Buddhist traditions, the practice is given of looking at every possible answer to the question of this is self and looking at it carefully, like looking, am I my fingernails? Am I my head? Am I my body? Am I my thoughts? Am I my physical uniqueness? You know, and looking at it carefully and asking, is this myself? And the aim of that is usually to uh, come up with the answer, well, not in the usual sense of the self as being independent and uh, permanent in some way. So, very, very interesting. But the, the, the uniqueness can go hand in hand without having a separate self, right? That's what's interesting because we might think, oh, uniqueness, that's, that's about self. Yeah. Maybe, maybe last one in terms of time. Yeah. Um, well, I watch my dogs a lot. I have two big dogs. Yeah. And they definitely have unique, distinct personalities. But yeah. I don't think they have the ego problems that <laughs> do. I do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, a thousand conversations, but the, the uniqueness of each living being or ant or bacteria, mm -hmm. but the attachment that we have to it. Yeah. Yeah, so the comment about observing dogs with distinct personalities, but without, uh, in Buddhist language, without so much grasping. <laughs> and so, so that's, really the, that's really the edge that, you know, the, again, all of the teachings that we get from the Buddha are, are practical. They're, you know, in, and what we do here, it's all we're trying to, I'm trying to make it experientially and practically based. And the question is, uh, when we explore our experience deeply, 
what is the self? How does it appear? What are the forms that it takes for me? Uh, does it fit the model of being separate and permanent, or is it more of a construction? And we'll look next time especially, is there this deep yearning to be someone, to be substantial, you know, um, and we have it in culture very strongly, right? You have to be someone. Not all cultures had that. A lot of other cultures, it's more just being a member of the community is enough. A different sense of self. I think there's still a sense of self there, but it's different. And we have to, what's the, how does it, um, uh, it's like the army slogan, be all you can be. <laughs> There's a, uh, which I, I heard was stolen from the human potential movement. <laughs> kind of Esalen and all that. And, uh, and so the question, you know, can, we, can we feel almost this longing or this wish, I have to be someone? And what's going to be pointed to is that the sense of self can be useful can be skillful in certain ways, but that when we look deeply at it, it's not ultimate. It doesn't ultimately hold. It's more of a construction for particular purposes. And that it's actually possible. And the, the liberating teaching is that when we look most deeply, we find actually something that's much bigger, we might say, than a separate self, that there's a kind of wisdom and intelligence, but it's more something that is very much present with the flux, the flow, and that doesn't pin anything down. It's also very much connected with love and compassion. And that that is, as it were, the deepest human potential which we begin to open up to, is something that expresses uh, something that's beyond the limited self, and that we have tastes of sometimes for a long time in these experiences I was mentioning, where we have no self-consciousness, where we're immersed. And that we can cultivate this, and it's really the purpose of practice, to cultivate, uh, and I'll end by saying to cultivate first, the continued examination of witness self-appear, both in our meditation and in the flow of daily life. Not to criticize it, not to judge it, just to notice. You can take notes. You know, what are your, what are your habits? When does the self appear? And a lot of the answers we had were very, very great starts to that. Secondly, opening up and, and tuning into those experiences where we're just there without much of a sense of self in meditation and in just in activities, maybe where you feel most free, most relaxed, least self-conscious. And then thirdly, as we're investigating this, do do some of the heart practices that hold all of this with friendliness and even uh, compassion, because there, there is some uh, challenging material when we go deeply into this, as I was mentioning, in terms of my own experience. So I'll end just by um, uh, reminding ourselves, reminding myself that we do this investigation, this practice, not just for ourselves, but we do it for ourselves, so to speak, <laughs> and we also do it for others. And may the morning be of benefit uh, to ourselves, to all those with whom we're in contact, and ultimately beyond our own circles of connection to, uh, to all beings in known and unknown ways. <laughs>